very good arms. He didn't fall? Inconceivable! You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Alright, let's go to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the uh, text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the rooms and little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take that physical one home. reason for that is real, real simple. We believe that God's Word is used for all kinds of super important things. He's given it to us for all these grand purposes, but chief among those grand purposes is to reveal Himself to His people. And we want you to know God. And so if uh, you don't have a Bible outside of this place, that puts you at a disadvantage to coming to, to know Him. And so you can take that little paperback Bible, start reading it, and I'll call it a win. All right, so um, The Princess Bride, man. It, I, I don't know if anybody really hates the movie The Princess Bride. Uh, it's just clean fun. Um, you can, you can kind of have a neutral opinion about The Princess Bride, but more likely than not, you kind of look on it with, with endearment and this, this, this kind of awe and just love because it's this super fun movie that's full of super fun characters and super witty lines and all that kind of stuff. And so uh, super quotable lines, but there's this one line for me that just rises to the top of the pile so easily. Inigo Montoya, the Spanish swordsman, he's out to avenge the death of his father. And so he's teamed up with Vicini and Fezzik. He hears Vicini use the word inconceivable, misappropriately, right? inappropriately, the wrong way for the last time. He's just sick and tired of it. And he's decided to call it out. And so he says, my favorite line in the movie, you keep using that word, but I don't think that means what you think that means. Now, if you have uh, a love for the movie, you probably have a different favorite line. That's okay. All right, for some of you, it's Wesley repeating over and over again, as you wish, as you wish, as you wish. And then as he rolls down the hill, as you wish. You could probably finish it for me, right? Others of you think that the obvious best line in the movie is the wedding scene. Marriage is what brings us together today. Did you know you could load gifts straight into Keynote? That's a brilliant thing. We should do this more often. All right. Now, like The Princess Bride is really just this good, fun movie full of really memorable stuff. And obviously, you're allowed to like whatever favorite line you want. It's a free country. But it just so happens that I pick my absolute favorite line for a very, very specific reason. It's because, well, I actually find myself thinking the same exact thing all the stinking time, all, all the time. Um, I don't think that means what you think that means. And I'm sure there are other situations, you've been in situations just like that, right? Situations where you've seen this thing and for whatever reason it's being misused, misquoted, misappropriated, misapplied, whatever miss you want to put in there, misrepresented by people who end up twisting that thing into something that it was never meant to be, something that was uh, out of its original design, right? And um, there are all kinds of things that we do this to in our culture. Misconceptions are all over the place. And so over the last couple of months, we've been working through this little summer season but over the last couple of months, we've been sharing some of the most common misconceptions in our world. Just kind of have fun with it. And uh, it just so happens that I've got one more list for you this morning. You ready to look at it? Despite the fact that we all learned this this way in grade school, there are no such things as taste zones on your tongue. Some of you are going, what? But I saw this picture in my textbook. You're right, you did. It's all over the place. But there is no such thing as zones of taste. Even though every single one of us, myself included, saw a map exactly like this one, some of them better drawn, some of them less better drawn, like we all saw this thing, right, uh, that's just not the case. 
it's not actually true. Um, it's actually the result of a snowball that just kept rolling down the hill. It's the result of a bad translation from German, which is the source of most problems in our, in our life, right? <laughs> bad German translation. Now, in 1901, researcher German, uh, uh, German researcher David P. Honig, and I'm sure I butchered his name, he studied the sensitivity of um, specific tastes on the tongue, four specific tastes, all right? And he concluded that there are certain areas of the tongue that have a slightly, and the key word here is slightly more sensitive reaction, all right? To four tastes. And so sour, sweet, bitter, and salty. He didn't taste for anything else like savory or umami, the Japanese flavor that we all know about, right? But he tested for those four, and then he attempted to kind of crudely illustrate his drawings, uh, illustrate his findings. So he wanted to say, well, well, the back of the tongue, it kind of senses bitterness better. And so that's kind of this area here. And so another guy, another researcher came across this and picked it up and ran with it. And somehow... He completely missed the word slightly in the German. And so he built it as the places on the tongue where those tastes come from, where we're able to taste those things, and it just went unchallenged for the next 70 to 80 years. And so it's all over the place. You, you Google taste, uh, taste zones or tongue taste zones, and you will come up with all kinds of helpful illustrations that are just completely wrong. And anecdotally, we, we all kind of know this to be false, right? Like, um, according to this map, bitter is tasted in the back and sweet is tasted on the front, right? But if you were to take something bitter and touch it to the tip of your tongue, are you going to be aware that it's bitter? <laughs> Immediately. You don't need to get it all the way to the back of your mouth to tell, right? And so we all kind of anecdotally know that this is true. And we can all test this theory at home, but, well, no one ever seemed to challenge it for decades. And so it's still in textbooks everywhere. Textbooks are great. I geek out over good textbooks all the time. I am definitely a nerd in that way. But no textbook is perfect, and here's your proof, right? So, ready for number two? Even though several of you want to take a trip to Australia just to test this theory out for yourself, toilets do not flush in the opposite direction in the Southern Hemisphere. Don't you wish they did, though? That's the myth, though. Because of the Coriolis effect, a lot of uh, people think that, uh, that any kind of drain, any kind of whirlpool, will flow in the opposite direction. So, in other words, in the northern hemisphere, drains always flow one direction, and in the southern hemisphere, drains always flow the other direction, right? That's the, the idea behind it. Now, there is such a thing as a Coriolis effect. That's definitely a thing, and you see it play out in major wind streams and storm movements and all, this, all that kind of stuff across the globe. But the smaller the scale, the less the Coriolis effect takes uh, affects things, right? And so when you get down to the toilet level, it's essentially non-existent. And so it's just not there. So uh, it just, that's not what's going on. Um, so what then does make the water swirl? Because we've all watched the water swirl, right? Well, it's piped in at an angle. <laughs> and it continues to swirl in the same direction. It doesn't like reverse course because of the Coriolis effect, right? It's piped in at an angle. It's designed to sweep the water across the surface in order to clean the bowl. There's no fancy science thing going on. It's just getting the job done, in which, let's be honest, in that moment, you're not looking for fancy. You want the job to be done, right? All right, number three. And as a pastor, this one uh, gets me riled up every once in a while. Christians do not become angels after they die. It's just everywhere. Um, some of y'all think, is that really a thing? Do people actually believe that? Yeah, people actually believe that. And um, 
whether you notice it or not, it's definitely the way the culture at large tends to paint the picture. Uh, whether we're talking about the wonderful life, uh, it's Clarence up there, for those of you who are in the know. Right? He believes, like the story in a wonderful, It's a Wonderful Life has him being born in Boston. He's a person who became an angel. So that's how kind of things work in TV and movies, right? And so someone dies, they get wings and a halo, you want to add the next layer for effect, you put them sitting emotionlessly on a cloud plucking a a harp, yeah. So we've all seen the picture, right? It's one of the biggest death tropes in cinema history. And we can debate at another time exactly what message they're trying to send in that moment, but you can just as easily step out of the movie screen and see this all over the place in our culture. Um, as a pastor, I've done a lot of funerals in my day. You want me to count how many of the times I've heard somebody get up behind a microphone and say, God gained an angel this week? It's all over the place. Now, in that moment, I usually hold my tongue because a funeral is not the place to nitpick theology. (laughs) Usually. (laughs) Sometimes it's egregious. Usually in that moment, you hold your tongue. But here, I get to talk about it. So, you don't become an angel when you die. The Bible describes angels as magnificent. They're described as powerful. They're even described as terrifying, right? But the Bible also, also clearly describes them as a lower form of creation than you. But Stephen, they, they do this, and they do that, and they do all this other stuff. Yeah, you're right. But you are described as an image bearer of God himself, and angels don't get that title. There's a status difference there, right? First Peter 1 tells us that angels marvel at, or they long to look at, verse 12 tells us, the great things that God is working in and through you with the gospel. They look at you and what God is doing through you, and they go, whoa. They marvel at it. And so according to the picture that the Bible paints of angels, and I'm hoping that's our authority, right? According to the picture that the Bible paints of angels, becoming an angel would actually be a step backwards for you after you die. That's not a win, all right? No one becomes an angel when they die. If they're a Christian, they get to go be with God, and if they're not, they get justice. That's the way it works, full stop. But I've got a fourth misconception for you, and this one riles me up. It's one that irks me every single time, and it's often... I go through a fast food drive through at breakfast. Tater tots are not the same thing as hash browns. <laughs> They're not. Right? This, is, this, is, this is maybe less of a misconception more than it is just something that drives me absolutely bonkers. Tater tots are one of God's greatest gifts to creation, but also so are hash browns, and they are not the same thing, right? We can all agree on that. So, Certainly not when you smash them together into a tater tot shingle like a certain nameless illustration on the screen. I get it, though. Hash browns, you can't eat while, they're, while you're driving. I, I kind of understand that logic. It's hard to get the fork out and the, the ketchup and the pepper. and You can't hold the plate, like, like especially if you're driving a standard. Like, that's hard. You can't, you can't eat hash browns going through the drive-thru. I get that. I just think that fast food companies ought to be more honest with their advertising. That's all. Tater crowns does not a hash brown make, and that means I'm talking about you, Chick-fil-A. Why don't you go, my pleasure, your way into an actual solution for this nonsense. So misconceptions are all over the place, right? They're all over the place out in our world, but the reality is that there are a lot of misconceptions inside these walls too, right? Whether we're talking about 
things that get attributed to the Bible that aren't in the Bible at all or get attributed to the Bible that, that are there but are misquoted and misapplied and misframed as things that we would call a proof text. And we've learned throughout the course of this series now over the last couple of months this summer that a proof text is when you make something mean something else by removing it from its original context, by pulling it out of its immediate surroundings in the Bible and reframing and repackaging as, it, as something that it never was intended to be. And so uh, now sometimes this is done by people on purpose, by people who are looking to be mean, looking to undermine God's word, looking to undermine the church. And, and, and that's terrible. And that's, we should call that out and, and we should do something about that. But a lot of times, honestly, this is, this is really just a, a form of laziness. We don't read our Bibles well. Someone quotes something in a wrong way and somebody else who's never read that for themselves go, hey, that sounds really good. I like that. And they, so they quote it again and then somebody else quotes it and it just begins to pick up steam and become something it was never meant to be, right? This is what proof texts normally are in the Christian subculture because nobody ever steps in and says, well, hey, how about we actually open up the Bible and see what that says? Well, it just becomes this big thing that spreads like wildfire. But whether a proof text is on purpose or not, the end result is always the same. It's misinformation. And misinformation is no bueno when you serve and worship a God who calls himself the truth. That's, that's a party foul in, in the church. And so we wanted, to, well, we wanted to poke a little fun at ourselves over this summer and just kind of point out some of the most egregious examples of proof texting and just attempt to set the story straight by saying, you keep using that verse. But I don't think that means what you think that means. So, you ready to jump into our final one? Now, it's not the final proof text in the Christian subculture, but it is our final one for this course of this series. So, who's our offender this week? Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Words from Jesus himself. Say hello to the evangelism verse, right? If you want to set the hook in your attempt to win your friend to Jesus, if you want to call them to finally turn the corner and say yes to the call of Jesus in their heart and life, then Revelation 3 has got a verse for you, right? It's a verse that calls for a clear response. Obviously, he's standing there knocking. It's a very clear piece of the gospel, right? Like, like does anybody want to argue that Jesus doesn't call for his people to respond? It's a very clear part of a gospel presentation. All right, here's what has happened. What are you going to do with it, right? That's a very clear thing, very important thing. So this imagery, the things that we naturally picture when this verse is read or we come across it ourselves, like the imagery is a powerful one, right? Jesus is waiting. He's standing around waiting for you to do something. Can't you just see Jesus knocking on a door? Waiting patiently for you to open up your heart to him? But I do have a question, though. Like, um... How long do you think Jesus waits around without an answer? Like, what happens if nobody opens? Does he just, does he like look at his watch for a while, maybe ring the bell again? Does, does he go to the next house and then come back, hoping to come back around, the, maybe we'll get him on the next chance? Do you, do you think he ever like sullenly has a bad day and nobody opens the door and he just kind of wanders through the neighborhood of our hearts, hoping somebody will open the door to him and let him come in and play? Hypothetical question. You think 
think Jesus ever gets lonely and wishes somebody, just anybody, would open up the door and let him come in. And so in the Christian subculture that we've created for ourselves, Jesus' words here, they, they kind of naturally lean into, carry the idea that Jesus needs you to do him a solid, right? Let him come in and hang out for a while. He's got nowhere else to go. Won't you let him hang out on your couch? Right? But you don't have to just take my word for it. I spent a little bit of time this week on the Google machine, and this is what I found. First up is the home decor, because all good proof texts need to be a handmade decorative vibe and be sold at the next craft fair. This here is called a diamond embroidery or a diamond painting. That picture is made up of thousands of tiny little plastic pellets that you glue down to a piece of paper. Some of y'all, that sounds like a fun afternoon. To me, that sounds like Dante's first circle of hell. <laughs> but whatever. You can buy this kit on Amazon. Spend days or whatever putting thousands. I, I don't have the patience for that at all. But you can also get a kit for yarn art or decoupage. Really, any crafty-minded person there has a lot of options for proof texting. Uh, but listen, if you're more of the hanging on the wall and walk away type, then uh, last week we looked at a nice picture from the fine folks at Fine Art America, and they've got a selection for your consideration this week as well. $253 for this, this poster made out of paper. You can hang it on your wall, right? That sounds fun. But listen... I mean, you can't just have a three-by-four poster hanging on the wall. You need some matting and a frame. And so for a few minor upgrades, you can get this one for $781. You can show all your posh little friends that you were faithful to open the door to Jesus, and so should they, right? Which raises an important question, though, or at least an important point. This verse, it's less about decorating and really more about you know, winning souls for Jesus. And so you can get this little statue that encompasses both. Many, 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 many moons ago, I was on staff at a church that cooperated in a network of churches. And that network, every single year, would give an award out to the pastor whose church reported the most salvations that year. This exact statue was the award they gave. You share Jesus, you get a statue. Now, you can't find the statue anymore. They have an updated version, which looks a lot nicer, let's be honest. Jesus just knocking on the door there. Just in case you're interested, you can give out an evangelism award here, right? No? Okay, good. But like every week, you don't really get this ball rolling until you start putting stuff on Facebook, right? And so when it comes to social media posts, it seems that people prefer to leave Jesus off the picture and just go with the door. Or, for some reason, just the knocker. And for some weird reason that I can't seem to figure out, the door handle. There you go. Won't you open up to Jesus? But we're off track. Hey, speaking of tracks, you can actually order some that revolve around this verse. Because every great evangelism verse needs a good track, right? You can also get the kids involved, all right? A little missions project, have them color a picture of Jesus. These are door hangers, all right? You can cut that out, and they can leave it on all their neighbor's doors, right? Preach the gospel at all times and use words only if necessary. No? Okay, great. But door hangers, 
I'm just going to be honest. I'm, I'm kind of confused about the door hanger thing because, well, a lot of the time you, you don't actually see a door handle in any depictions of this verse. Every single artistic depiction of this verse that I can find with Jesus in the picture. Now, there's a lot without him. We had the door hanger thing, the door handle thing a while ago. But every single picture I can find that has Jesus in the picture, the picture doesn't have a door handle. Jesus is usually shown on the outside of the door and there's no handle available for him to grab a hold of. And that's been the case of every single picture of Jesus I've shown you this morning. It's also true here. And here we get an explicit reasoning for why. I know the text is small, but it says Jesus knocking on your door, period. Notice there is no handle on the outside. He waits for you to choose to open it from the inside. So what we're looking at here is an intentional design, an intentional decision by the artist to make a theological statement about Jesus' ability to open the door. Right? He'll never barge in. He's far too gentlemanly for something like that. He, in fact, there's not even a handle on the outside. He can't open the door unless you explicitly open it for him. This logic was first seen in a very famous painting called The Light of the World. It was painted in the early 1850s by an Englishman named William Holman Hunt. He's a part of the pre-Raphaelite movement, which, which uses really vivid colors, very saturated colors, and was intentional about putting messages all throughout, layer upon layer upon layer of messages through the painting. And so um, the no-handle thing was explicitly mentioned by him as one of the layers to this painting. He wanted to make the statement that Jesus can't open the door unless you open the door for him. Later in life, he painted a life-size version of this, and it's currently hanging at St. Paul's Cathedral in London. So it's a big deal painting. The idea that Jesus is waiting powerlessly but patiently at the door to your heart has grown into one of the most deep-seated pieces of theology in many groups that call themselves Christians. Right? It's that Jesus has done his part, won't you please be kind and return the favor kind of thought process. That logic and narrative is an essential part of a lot of a lot of groups' theology. It's a part of Catholic theology. It's also essential to Mormon theology and even cult groups like the Eastern Lightning Church, otherwise known as the Church of the Almighty God. Despite the name they want to be known by, though, the Jesus they're trying to articulate here doesn't sound all that almighty, does he? Sounds like he's waiting on you to do something. He needs you to do something. Just waiting around hoping somebody will open the door and let him hang out for a while and listen to him and hear what he has to say. Won't somebody please be friends with Jesus? And such a small view of God can't help but inspire some others to mock. I mean, if Jesus is going to knock on the door, maybe, maybe you ought to get something out of it, right? So make no mistake, this is how our verse for the day is used in our camp a lot of the times, right? Behold, I stand at the door and knock is used as a Jesus is, await, is waiting around, waiting for you to make the next move kind of verse. That's the framing of this. It's a verse that, that we pull out when it's time to set the evangelistic hook and say, you don't want to keep Jesus waiting, do you? We've been saying all throughout this series that there's no distinction between out, those outside of these walls and those inside of these walls when it comes to our capability to proof text. If, if we can have, short of the grace of God, just as many blind spots as everybody else, then is it at all possible that maybe we've got some blind spots when it comes to this verse too? Like what if Jesus 
What if Jesus doesn't even have evangelism in mind when he says these words? So let's look at how the Bible actually frames Revelation 3 this morning. And to do that, I need to, well, I need to explain a little bit of context. Um, the book of Revelation is at the end of the Bible for a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, because it is the last thing, likely the last thing, that was written by the New Testament authors, right? Uh, the Apostle John is exiled on the island of Patmos, which is just off the coast of Turkey, uh, and he's punished there. He's on the island of Patmos as an exile because he was preaching the gospel, right? Uh, they didn't like that. They shut that down. They actually tried to execute him. It didn't work. And so they exile him on the island of Patmos, which is off the coast of Turkey. And so we think that all this plays out around the years or between the years 90 and 95 AD. All right, so we're talking like 60-ish years after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, right? And so uh, we believe that all the other New Testament books were written before that time frame. And so that means that this is the last words that we have from an apostle to the first century church, right? And so that matters, right? Revelation is also at the end of the Bible because it deals with things that haven't happened yet. Like even now. And there's some who would debate that, argue with that, but the majority of Christian scholarship points to John's writings here, his vision as, uh, as a vision of something that is happening or will happen in the future. Things to come at the very end of time and creation. All right, And so that means it's written with an, an apocalyptic tone, which, which means that it's full of vaulted imagery. Some of that imagery is stuff that's explained for us, and then a lot of it just very much isn't. All right, some of that stuff uh, is, is we're able to put the pieces together, and then there's some other stuff, really, that we're just going to have to wait to see what Jesus meant by it. Like, we don't actually know, and any, trying to, any attempt to try to nail it down is really an arrogant moment, right? Because, like, there's some stuff we can figure out, and then there's some other stuff that maybe we probably shouldn't try to figure it out, because we we, we're not going to get there, all right? And so that's what's going on in the letter. And so naturally, this leads to some debate about what certain things mean. They're intramural debates. Everybody talking about this stuff is still on Team Jesus. But like intramural debates, they can get weird sometimes because there's charts involved, right? And so it's not for the faint of heart. But regardless of the finer details, the obvious and overarching message of the book of Revelation is that King Jesus stands victorious forever. That's the point. Yes, he is the lamb who was slain, but he is also now sitting on the throne as the celebrated bridegroom and victorious conquering king. That's the message of Revelation. And because of his forever victory, and because it is so decisive, he is now making all things new and will make all things new. His people will dwell with him forever. He will be their God and they will be his people. That's Revelation in a nutshell. Now, early on in John's vision, the first few chapters even, uh, before you get to all the weird, hard-to-understand apocalyptic stuff, Jesus calls John over, and he wants to send through him messages to seven churches that are also located in Turkey, which we now refer to as the letters to the seven churches. I tell you all the time, Christians are so brilliant when it comes to naming things, right? Now, there's a lot of debate, a lot of debate over whether these churches are literal or figurative or both. I happen to be in the both camp. I believe that these are actual, real churches with real people in real time and place, but they also stand as, as 
representative, that's the word I was looking for, a representative of types of churches to come. And, and all these letters from Jesus, they kind of take a certain tone and a certain trajectory. He usually starts out by congratulating them on something good that they did, right? some, some thing to celebrate, and he, he frames it all through something specific to uh, the culture and the, the world of that city and that church in that city. And then, thirdly, he speaks to the negative. That's really the purpose of his letter. He wants to get to the negative because there's always something negative that he's got to point out. Right? And so he brings up their failings, he brings up their sin, and we're talking about sin that's egregious enough to immediately call for doing something about it or else we got a problem. Right? That's the tone of Jesus's letter. And so the threat is that if they don't fix that major problem, Jesus, who is Lord and master of these churches, will remove their lampstand. And it's a, and it's a kind of a poetic way of saying that they will cease to be a church anymore. They may gather together, but not in his name. They will cease to be a church. Their witness will be taken away from them regardless of what they think about it. That's the tone of the letter. So Jesus speaks to the negative, and then in some of the letters, Jesus returns again to pointing out other good stuff they do. So he kind of sandwiches it, like the good news sandwiches you've heard about. right? Good news, bad news, good news. I love those kind of sandwiches. Right? Some of them don't get that because there's not a lot of good stuff to celebrate. Jesus, though, Jesus, though, that's, that's the general pathway. Talk about the good thing. Hey, here's this problem. We need to do something about this problem right now or else we're going to have a problem, right? That's the tone of the letters. Do something about it or else. And so Jesus has John write these letters for him and he, he goes through the first six. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, all churches in modern day Turkey. And then he gets to the final church. Number seven, the church at Laodicea. So look at verse 14 with me. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Verse 15, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot, with it you are either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Okay, so you know how I told you a second ago that, that all of the letters, Jesus frames his praise and rebuke with something specific to the culture of the city, right? Here, Jesus just skips the good stuff, which indicates something, right? There isn't anything to celebrate there. He's got nothing but critique here. And he goes straight for the negative. Super fun letter, right? How many of y'all have had to write a letter like that? Jesus writes this letter to the church at Laodicea, and he calls them lukewarm. That's a fun word. Who likes lukewarm things? Is there anything that you can think of right now that you're like, you know what, I really want to lukewarm this. It's one of the most known verses in the Bible. So what's going on here? Well, Laodicea, the city of Laodicea, sits on a river, the Lysus River. All right? uh, the problem, though, is that the water is completely undrinkable. It's muddy, it's full of very heavy minerals, and so there's not, there's, you can't just drink that water. It's, it's not really good for anything. And so all of the potable water during the first century was piped in through an aqueduct, which means an open channel. You send water five miles, which is where their water was coming from, through an open channel. How's that water going to taste? Not so great. Here's another thing about that water, though. It came a hot spring five miles away. And so it starts out really hot and goes in an open channel for five miles. What's the temperature of that water by the time it gets to you? Lukewarm. It's not hot anymore, but it's also not cold either because, you know, it's the Middle East. Like, 
Like things happen to water that's just sitting there when it's out in the sun all day, right? And so by the time this water got to Laodicea, this water wasn't exactly a fun thing to drink. But their other option was undrinkable water in the river next door. And so really it was their best option, right? They were kind of stuck with it. And so by the time the water got to Laodicea, it was tepid. Cool water is great. Hot water has its place, but slightly warm water is not so fun. In fact, it's disgusting, right? Nobody really prefers that. It was the best option they had, but they were just stuck with it. Nobody is congratulating Laodicea on the excellency of their water. And so Jesus here, he uses that reality to illustrate something, right? He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. In other words, you're complacent. You lack zeal over what I've called you to. He says, you're neither hot nor cold. If you were either cold or hot, I could actually use you for something. But right now, because you're only lukewarm, you're disgusting to me. So I'm just going to go ahead and and spit you out of my mouth, he says. The Greek word for spit here, slightly more forceful in John's original letter. It's the word for vomit. Not a fun picture. The point here, though, is that Jesus seems to have a visceral reaction to their complacency. It's not something he's just unhappy about. It's something he will do something about. But he keeps going. Verse 17 For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. All right, so these words could easily stand on their own without explanation, right? Like, I don't need to stand up here and say, wretched is a bad word to be called a church, right? Like, no one's going, you know what, that sounds like a great place to hang out. I want to join them in membership, Like, I don't need to explain that. But again, there's a cultural piece here that helps us understand what's going on. Laodicea was a big deal city in Ephesus, or not in Ephesus, in Turkey, like 90-ish miles away from Ephesus. Laodicea was a big deal city. They had a lot going on. It was the center of commerce. It was the center of banking. Uh, they, They had a black wool linen industry there that was popular in the region. Everybody liked getting their black wool linen coats or whatever they made down in Laodicea because it looked fancy. Looked sharp. In other words, well, there was a lot of money flowing through Laodicea, right? You got a booming industry, something everybody wants, start handing you cash. So Laodicea was kind of sitting tall. Even though their water stunk, there was a lot of reasons to want to be the Laodiceans. But then a major earthquake happened in 60 AD. It happened all over the, the western region of Turkey. It affected a lot of cities, but Laodicea... Well, they saw it as an opportunity. See, Rome offered to help rebuild all these cities, and Laodicea went, "Uh uh-uh, not us. See, we got the cash, and we got the know-how, and we got the work ethic, and we got the resolve. And so the Roman historian Tacitus wrote in his annals, Laodicea arose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources and with no help from us. They were going to rebuild the city themselves. They didn't need Rome's help. No, thank you. We got this. They puffed up their chest and said, we'll be just fine. We don't need your help. We can own this one. They were going to rebuild the place themselves. and They didn't need outside help. They can stand on their own two feet. Thank you very much. And in his letter here, Jesus goes, you sure about that? 
You, you really sure about that? You think so? You, you say I'm rich. You say I have prospered. You say I need nothing. But from my vantage point, you don't look so hot right now. Spiritually speaking, you're wretched and pitiable. When I, you can puff up your chest all you want. When I see you, I don't see success. I don't see something to congratulate. I see something to pity. He says, from my vantage point, you're poor and you're blind. You're naked and you don't even know it. You don't even realize it. But Jesus is also the kind of king that offers clothing to the naked. And so see what he says next in verse 18. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Jesus says to that church, this church in Laodicea, if you would stop trusting in yourself and what you can accomplish and instead place your trust in my provision for you and in my name, you would actually be what you think you are. Congratulations, you got cash in your pocket. The treasure I offer, though, it's refined by fire and can't be stolen away from you. It's an otherworldly treasure. Congratulations, good for you. You got on a pretty black linen shawl, whatever. You're looking fancy today. But the clothing I provide, it's pure white and actually covers your shame. In a town that has a lot of purchasing power and all of the pride and the vanity that goes along with it, Jesus tells this church that what they really needed is to find their treasure and their provision and their identity in Him alone. You think you have this. You think you've got this. No, what you really need is this. That's the message. But these aren't things that you can purchase with money. They're things that can only be purchased by grace through faith and doesn't matter what numbers in the checkbook, you don't have the capital. But the good king works by a different economy, so he makes the offer. But there's another cultural layer to this that comes into play here. Jesus tells them to purchase salve to anoint their eyes. Um, apparently, they were quite famous uh, for an eye salve, right? Uh, not only were they a center for banking and a center for uh, this black linen, but they were also, they also kind of had a, like a growing, burgeoning medical industry there. Hey, you know that stinky river with all the heavy metals in it? Guess what it could actually be used for? And so Laodicea became this place where they, they made this ISAB that got exported all throughout the ancient world. And everybody looked to Laodicea to help them see better. But Jesus has a different opinion on the matter, doesn't he? He says, if you want to truly see, if you want to truly see, you'll buy your sad from me instead. Look at verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. All right, so um, I'm going to single out this verse simply because it's one of the most misunderstood realities in the larger Christian subculture. A, a lot of people struggle with the idea that, that God would discipline his children. And I think they do for a couple, of, uh, well, a couple of reasons. I think, first of all, that the entire idea of discipline is falling away from our culture. Just at large. And we can sit down and talk over a cup of coffee later about you know, the, the realities of that and how that fleshes itself out. I personally think that it's going to leave our culture in a very, very bad place. But we can take a step back from that 
And just talk on a scholarly level here for what it means to preach into a culture that sees things that way and looks at the world that way. Because preaching what the Bible thinks here is what's hard. See, whenever the whenever a biblical concept and an idea doesn't have a cultural foothold, that thing always feels foreign. It always feels uh, antiquated and backwoods and whatever. We're beyond that. We're past that. We don't do that thing. It's always the case. And so our sinful hearts don't even bother to ask whether or not it's true. We just give it the wave and move on, right? Just write it off. And so as things like discipline, it's certainly not the only thing, but things like discipline fade from our cultural reality, well, these biblical truths are going to become harder and harder and harder to wrap our heads around. It doesn't matter if they're true or not. It's just otherworldly, and we need, we need footholds to grab a hold of it. So some people are going to struggle with texts like this just because of that. But there's a second reason that verses like this in the Bible feel uncomfortable to us, and I think it's I think that's actually more tragic. I think the second reason is that because we carry a partially formed view of God's character into the equation. A partially formed view. We all kind of naturally, every single one of us, go to the Bible looking for things that affirm us and make us feel good about us. And it's just a condition of the fallen human heart. Every single one of us, uh, we, we go running to the Bible to say, this is what I want to find. And sadly, there are, there are a lot of preachers in our world today that are all too happy to tell people what they want to hear. And so by default, we cling as tight as we can to every single verse that we can find where God loves us and makes much of us, delights in us, serves us, provides for us. And we simultaneously do every single thing we can in our power to avoid verses just like this one. The last time you were you were hurting and struggling and desperately wanting God to speak and you didn't have the answer here for this thing or that thing and you went running to the Bible, do you go to verses like this? Or do you go to the verses where we find that God delights in His children, right? And so we have this kind of bent in us that, that really wants to celebrate this one piece of God and never celebrate this other piece of God because, you know, I like those other parts better. We've got two young kids in our house right now. They're both right at that stage where all the fun stuff is the greatest fun ever. Did you experience that stage? And all the not-so-fun stuff is the end of the world. Did you experience that stage too? And so we throw our heads back. And tears start to roll. And we want to make sure that everybody in the house and everybody in all the houses around us know that the world is ending. Love this stage. Love this stage. I have never in my lifetime, in that moment, gone, you know what? I want to see some more of this. Let's give them some more discipline. It does not make for a fun night at the Woodard home. Right? But why? Why do we press in and continue to, to discipline? Because I love my kids, right? I want good things for them now, but I also want great things for them in all of their days and years to come. Right? And so I'm working now to shape their future character and worldview. Not, be, not because I'm trying to be mean or manipulate something, but because I deeply love them and want long-term good for them. Right? Do I walk that line perfectly and without sin? Not a day. Not a moment. But for the good of my kids, we engage, right? 
any view or doctrine of God that doesn't allow for that kind of fatherly, proactive love can only ever be a partial view of who God is. It's a celebration of part of his character at best, maybe not at all, while ignoring half of who he is. It's an imagined version of God that only sees pieces of him. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous, church, and repent. Speaking to the church at Laodicea, Jesus says, you're complacent and you're prideful. You puff up your chest. You act like you've got it all together, but you're lukewarm. Even while you blindly believe that you've got it all figured out, he says, repent before I spit you out of my mouth. There's still time. There's still opportunity for zeal. I'm here for your discipline, but the end goal of discipline is always, always your future good. Repent, church. Repent. And it's with this context, this context, that our theme verse for the morning comes into play. Verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. When Jesus knocks on the door, he is not doing so as some homeless vagabond. He is not some transient seeking shelter or a buddy. Jesus is no beggar. No beggar. He is not a lonely buddy who's hoping you'll let him come in and play for a little while. Jesus is the master of the house. It's his door. It all belongs to him. He knocks on the door in order to see if his servants are alert and are going to respond the way they ought to respond. That's what's going on in this verse. Or else, maybe he ought to get some new servants. Either the servants are doing what the servants are supposed to do, or they're in the way. There's no need for a church that doesn't represent the master like the master wants to be represented. It's not an invitation to become buddies with Jesus. It's an elevation of the urgency to his threat. And that's further proven by what Jesus says next. Verse 21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do do what the Master commands and you get to keep representing the Master as a church. Fail? Well, then what purpose does he have for that church? Like, what good is that to him? And the tragic reality is that there are gatherings of people all over the place who are still gathering for this reason and gathering around that thing and gathering around this thing who ceased a long time ago to gather around the Jesus thing. The obedient to Jesus thing. And guys, I think our text this morning tells us what Jesus thinks about those gatherings. Now, before we point the finger anywhere else besides us, we need to swallow deep and Remember that there were probably a lot of really good things going on in Laodicea. Things that as they read this letter for themselves, probably tried to point to. Jesus, have you seen this? Have you seen that? Have you heard about our such and such ministry? It's going great. 
Jesus, we got this thing going on and that thing going on. Complacency and pride are not the sins of that church down the road from us. They just as easily the sins of us. And so Jesus, well, he loves his church far too much to let them stay there. He calls his people to repentance. The master is knocking on the door here, so what are we going to do about it? Hey guys, I don't think that Revelation 3.20 means what people who put it on plastic diamond art and hand it out for evangelism awards thinks that it means. Follower of Jesus, God loves you. He, he lovingly pursues you in spite of you for the good of you. As a massive reality. He is patient and he is good. He is gentle. But that do not mistake his patience and gentleness for weakness. He is no beggar. The master of the house expects certain things from the churches that bear his name. And he will not suffer them long who violate that trust. And in the words of Jesus himself, those who have an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the question that must be asked this morning is simple. For those of you who make up the Baptist church at Nashua, do we live with zeal for what our Master has called us to? Or is it possible we could slip into complacency too? Do we trust Him and His provision rather than our own ability to accomplish? As we pat ourselves on the back for this good thing that we've done or that good thing that we've done, is it possible that we begin to puff up our chest and act like we're the ones that figured it out? No, no, we can stand on our own two feet. We don't need you. If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, your response is to press into God today through repentance and faith. And so I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. We'll We'll have some leaders down front here to talk and pray with you if that would serve you this morning. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm, I'm glad you chose to hang out with us today. Listen, we want to give you the opportunity to meet him today too. The Bible teaches that because of our sin, we are rightly separated from a holy God. We always Always choose the path of sin because that is what is most appealing and pleasing and attractive to us. But the Bible also teaches that God is willing to do something about that separation. What did he do? Jesus came and he lived a sinless life, living perfectly obedient to the Father and his commands. He died on the cross as a substitute to pay the debt that you and I owe for our sin. And he now calls you to repentance and faith. The Bible teaches that Jesus knocks on the door. He's not knocking on the door of your heart. That's not what's going on. He's not hoping that you'll let him come in. The sovereign king of the cosmos, the Lord of all creation, who has once and for all defeated Satan, sin, and death, he does call for you to respond. I think the answer is pretty obvious, don't you? I think there's only one really appropriate way to respond to this call. And so in a moment, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That'll be an opportunity for you to call on Him in faith this morning. Confess Him as Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead is what Romans 10 tells us. So I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. Let's all respond to God's Word this morning.